Father, we need you. Spirit, we pray for your presence. You would run your word into our hearts that we would be able to receive it appropriately and not make it some special blend or mix of what we think, but to really get your thoughts on the matter. And so we need your help for that and thankful that you've promised to give it. So we're not praying in blind faith, but trusting faith that you will do as you have said and make your word come alive in us today as we see it clearly in Christ Jesus, our King. So we pray in his name. Amen. Okay, so last week we were in Psalms 111, and I said that Psalm 111 sets us up for Psalms 112, which is where we are today. So Psalms 111 and 112 are kind of like matching books. They're supposed to go together. It could be said that Psalm 112 is the result or the culmination of Psalm 111. Or said another way, Psalm 112 is the result or the outcome of the life of praise that was put forth in Psalm 111. And so the fact that these two Psalms are combined or taken together helps us understand what the focus or the main point that we are to keep in mind. So what's this main point? I'm going to give it to you, and then I'm going to repeat myself over and over throughout our time together, okay? But here's the main point of these two psalms taken together. God is great, and He is worthy of our praise. That's Psalms 111. And then Psalms 112 then says, and His life gets reflected or transferred into those who are making a life of declaring His greatness. God is great, and when we adjust ourselves to be participants in declaring His greatness, we actually begin to reflect His character and His presence. His his reflection, His life, gets reflected or transferred into those who live a life of declaring Psalms 111. God, you're worthy for us to say good things about you on a regular basis. So if you remember, or maybe you weren't here with us last week, in Psalms 111, the psalmist starts off and ends with hallelujah, which means praise Yah, praise the Lord, And then in between those two bookends of praise, he fills our minds and our hearts with reasons. This is why we're going to praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord. Here's why we're doing all this praising. And so he does that in verses 2 through 9. So now in like fashion, Psalms 112 also starts with a hallelujah or praise the Lord. And then like Psalms 111, he begins with his stated purpose. Here's his intention, right out of the gate, verse 1. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. And then in verses 2 through 9, he fills out that statement with this is how the God-fearer, the command-delighter, is blessed. Okay, so Psalm 111, he says, 
Praise the Lord. We're going we're gonna to give him praise. We're going to give thanks to the Lord with our whole heart. And then he does that in verses 2 through 9. So now in Psalms 112, he starts with, Blessed is the man who fears the Lord. And then in verses 2 through 9, he fills out what that fearing the Lord looks like, what that delighting in his commands look like, and what the blessing is that comes to the man, the person, the woman, who delights in the law of the Lord and fears him. Just before the final hallelujah of Psalms 111, the Psalter is concluding And he says that those who organize their lives around God's person and his character, they organize their lives and their thinking and their value system around the Lord and his character, which is another way of saying they fear the Lord. He says they have a baseline of wisdom and understanding that is necessary for life to be lived as it was designed to be lived. So he says this, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and all those who practice it have a good understanding. Now the psalmist picks up that theme of fearing the Lord and he starts with it in Psalms 112. And so this idea of fearing the Lord brings these two psalms together like a hinge that connects them both in the middle. And the pivot point is this reality of the fear of the Lord and delighting in His commands. And so the central point in both of these Psalms is that God is worthy or deserving of our praise and we are to fear Him. I'm going to define that term throughout our time together, but in a few minutes I'm going to try to You'll hear me talking about it, what the fear of the Lord is, and saying it in different ways, but then succinctly pull it together and define it so that we understand what we're talking about, okay? But the central point, again, in both of these Psalms is that God is worthy. We are to fear Him and to delight into His commands. He is our starting point, and we must begin with Him. We have to Begin with Him. This is, by the way, how the whole book of Psalms opens up. Psalms 1.1 Blessed is the man who does not absorb the counsel of the world, but rather he delights in the law of the Lord and he meditates or he gazes on it day and night. Proverbs has the same message and it too says something very similar right out of The gate, it begins this way. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. I was watching a video this week that I've watched before. And this guy was an apologist who would um, present truths about God on college campuses all over the country. And so he would give evidences and then ask the recipients to, hey, I'm not here to try to convince you. Let me just give you the evidences and then you judge for yourself whether or not these things are true. And he realized after 20 years, this was a backwards way of doing things because he was trying to convince people who had no foundation of wisdom. 
And he says, actually, Romans 1 says, the law of God is written on your hearts. You know these things to be true, and you're actually holding them down. And he said, I no longer give people evidence and then put God on trial as if they and their wisdom can decide whether or not to believe. God is not to be on trial. You have to start with God in order to have wisdom. Apart from an understanding that the Lord is in charge, he knows more than me, you cannot gain wisdom and understanding. And this is how the psalmist opens up as well as the author of Proverbs. And so in chapter 2, verse 6, and also 9 and 10 in Proverbs, this reads, For the Lord gives wisdom, from his mouth come knowledge and understanding. In him you will understand righteousness and justice and equity, every good path. For wisdom will come into your heart, and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. And this is how the psalmist starts, verse 112. Verse 1. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. So now as we are continuing in Psalm 12 again, these central points continue to be developed. The psalmist declares that the person who is joyfully consumed with the Lord, with His attributes, with His character and His works, and therefore bases their lives on the truth as God defines it, they come into an inheritance of wisdom that isn't theirs, but it becomes theirs through their understanding of putting God in the right place. You with me? And we have to keep that in mind as we come to Psalms 112. Because even as we read it out loud together, Psalms 112, taken in on its own, or taken out of context, or even viewing it a little bit askew, could very easily be misconstrued into some lousy infomercial for the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. In other words, obey the Lord, and you'll be rich and healthy, and you'll have shiny children, and you'll never experience difficulties or have enemies. See, if we're not careful, and if we don't understand what the point is of Psalms 112, we are likely to and many people do, by the way, search one Psalms 112 on the internet and you'll see a slew of really bad sermons about how this verse is all about you and getting the life that you want. It's not what this psalm is about. This psalm is about the greatness of God and how wisdom and understanding start with Him. And when you align yourself with that reality, his character traits do start to emulate from our lives. But also taking a bit different view of a skew, it could become, Psalms 112 could become a tool by which to judge others. Well, they're not financially stable, or their kids aren't so shiny. Therefore, they must not fear the Lord. But again, 
we must keep in mind the central point is the praise of God and His works, not the evaluation of ours. We have to remember that to see it rightly. So there's two ditches when we're reading this psalm that we want to avoid in both the reading and studying and in its application. So here's the first ditch that we need to stay out of. The psalm is about a blessed life and how to get it. It's not what it's about. The health, wealth, and prosperity gospel would tell you that we use, they wouldn't say this out loud, but this is exactly what it turns into, that you use God as a tool to get your blessed life. If you want a blessed life, then treat God this way, and He's obligated to make your life work the way you can read it to work. That's a ditch. It's not what the passage is saying. But the other ditch, and maybe if we're overcorrecting and come over to the other side of the road, which we often get ourselves in trouble overcorrecting, right? We see a bad theology like the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel, and we react to that and end up in the other ditch rather than responding to the truth of the Lord. And what we don't want to get caught doing is overreacting to a bad theology and then end up not responding to good theology and we end up in another antithesis bad theology. The other ditch is this, you should feel guilty or undeserving of any blessings that you experience because of loving God. Perhaps again, in effort to avoid bad theology, you end up in this other ditch rather than focusing on what the Lord really is saying. Or maybe even we think ourselves humble And we're constantly attempting to deny any connection between our good behavior and the blessings of the Lord. Oh no, that's you know, it's not really me. You know, you know, that's all the Lord, and there's there's nothing I can do. You know, God's just good to me. But in actuality, if God wrote it, and we're distorting it, that's not humility. That's pride. And so we, in correcting somebody else's pride, we end up in our own if we're not careful. So those are two ditches that we need to stay out of. And here's the way that I would encourage us that we need to stay out of those two ditches. Here's how we stay in the middle. Number one, we know this, that the Lord and His attributes and His majestic works are the focus, not just of our lives, but in particular of this passage. We are to know that the Lord and His attributes, His character traits, and the wonderful things that He is doing, that is the focus and not the blessing that comes as a result. The second thing that we can do to stay out of these two ditches is to understand this, that this psalm is ultimately about Jesus. The only one who truly feared God the Lord, fears the Lord, and delighted to do His will is Christ Himself. We actually see a manifestation, a prophecy, leaning towards Christ, um, giving us a picture of Christ in verses 8 and 9. Let me start in verse 7. No, sorry. Verse 8. 
His heart is steady. He will not be afraid until he looks in triumph on his adversaries. He has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. His horn is exalted in honor. Ultimately, those things are about Christ. What's amazing is that in gazing on the goodness of the Lord and arranging ourselves around the wisdom that He gives us, that we can begin to emulate the righteous person, can begin to actually manifest some of these same characteristics. It's true. But ultimately, it's only seen in Christ. Pastor Doug Wilson says that this psalm is ultimately about one person and one person alone. It's not about good little boys and good little girls. And we must fix this truth in our mind. I agree. We have to understand what this psalm is about so we don't get askew. So we should know that this is about the Lord and His his attributes. We understand that this psalm is ultimately about Christ, but we can begin to emulate Him. And lastly, we should remember that we are created in the image of God. And that means... We were made to relate to Him and reflect back to Him His character. That's what we were meant to do. And when we do that, we become like what we worship. And when we become like what we worship, we begin to emulate the life of the One in whom we worship and we receive the same kind of gifts that the Lord's life has by consequence. Are you with me? When we begin to take on the characteristics of the Lord, we also take on the blessing of His life. And so keeping these truths in mind will help us to see what is being said in Psalms 112 rightly. And I would summarize it this way. Fear God. Delight in His commands and enjoy a life of blessing. So backing up just a bit, Psalm 111 describes what God is like. God is a worker who makes wonderful things. Psalms 111 verse 2. He is righteous. He is good. He's virtuous. He's morally impeccable. Verse 3. In verses 4 and 5, it says that he is provisional and compassionate. In verse 6, he is mindful of his offspring and their inheritance. He thinks generationally about the goodness and the good things he wants to give to his children. Chapter 11, verse 7, he is faithful, he is just, and he is truthful. Verse 8 and verse 9, he is worthy, he is trustworthy, and he is unmoving. And then then verse 10 says, and this is why his praise endures forever. So Psalm 111 gives us a picture of the character of the Lord. Now in Psalms 112, he describes the life of those who fear God and delight in his commandments begin to take on the attributes of the Lord that were described in chapter 111. You with me? This is good. This is really helpful. Spurgeon, speaking of this psalm, says, 
that Psalm 112 bears the same relation to Psalm 111, which the moon does the sun. For while Psalm 111 declares the glory of the Lord, Psalm 112 speaks of the reflection of the divine brightness in men who have been born from above. We begin to reflect the very radiance of the Lord whom has borne us in His Spirit. And so as we continue to work through Psalm 112, we're going to see that these characteristics are of God are reflected in the life of those of us of those of us who have been born of his spirit who fear him and who delight in his commandments. And so now we're going to come to this point where I want to define clearly what does it mean to fear him, to fear the Lord. I'm going to define it this way and then caveat it a little bit because I couldn't cram it all into a couple of sentences, okay? But here's the fear of the Lord. Someone who is joyfully consumed with the Lord, His attributes, His character, and His works, and they base their lives on the truth as God defines it, and they delight in living the way that God has designed life to work. Now, built in this definition, there is embedded a fear and a dread of living in opposition to the way that God has designed it. So I don't want to make this, you know, this happy American version that the fear of the Lord is, you know, we're tossing flowers and scripping through a field. There's a component of there that outside of what I've defined, that if I'm not living this way, there's a shaking there's a fear, a dread. I've told you guys stories of you know, really stupid things that I've done. And I think back and I think, oh my gosh, I wish I would have never have done that. You guys have all had these experiences. You can think back to an instance in your life and you think about, I potentially cost somebody else their life. And you go, oh my gosh, I just, I'm so glad to have been saved by that, from that, Right? There is a component of the fear of the Lord where we live in dread of, of, of conflicting with the living God. And it ought to cause us to quake. A shaking distress that comes from the thought of being outside of God's favor. But this should never result in a servile fear or drudgery in our obedience. So if for some way you think in your mind that the definition of the fear of the Lord includes, man, if it wasn't for this guy looming over me, I'd be doing something much different than this because this kind of a life is horrible. But I'm, if I get outside, he's going to whack me. You know, God's playing some game, a cruel game of, you know, whack-a-mole at Chuck E. Cheese. And if I poke my head up in the wrong spot, he's giving it to me. Okay, if that's, your, if that's included in your definition of fear of the Lord, you don't understand the fear of the Lord. And we know that, one of the ways we know that is right here in this psalm, because he ties fear of the Lord with great delight in his commandments. A true fear of the Lord says, you're amazing, you're awesome. You have the best way about going about things, and I want to live in that way. I'm delighted to live in that way. 
And the psalmist would say, and you should be delighted to live in that way. So now from verses 2 through 9, I'm going to unpack for you how delightful it is, how blessed it is to live in that way. So here we go. You ready? Eight ways the psalmist says, this blessed life that comes from fearing the Lord and delighting in His commandments. I'm going to give you some ways to meditate on this. Here's some eight things that reveal the blessing that comes from a God-fearing, command-delighting life. Verse 2. His offspring will be mighty in the land. The generation of the upright will be blessed. The God-fearing, command-delighting person views and relates to their family in healthy ways. Parents aren't looking, the godly parent, the God-fearing, command-delighting parent isn't looking to get their needs met from their children. They're not looking to get their insecurities solved by their kids. And therefore, their children are secure and they're confident and they're mighty. You with me? Some of you are looking at me like, where's he going with this? I don't think that's what the passage says. I'm telling you, you think about the passage. He's saying a guy, a person, a mom, a dad who delights in the Lord, whose whole confidence and identity is in the Lord. They're going to be good parents. And their children are going to be, have, experience the result of that good, secure parenting. And these kids are going to be blessed, not just in the relationship with their parents, but they're going to get the residual blessing, the overflow of blessing. So even if the kids aren't believing themselves, they're going to get the, the blessing of the belief of their parents and all the good things that come along with believing parents. And also, they're going to be set up for a life of believing on their own. His offspring will be mighty in the land. The generation of the upright will also be blessed. The second blessing is in verse 3. Wealth and riches are in his house, and his righteousness endures forever. We can definitely see in the passage that wealth, financial resources are part of it, but notice he also says righteousness. It's not just about financial gain. It's about a spiritual richness. But because God rules this God-fearing, command-delighting person, they relate to their finances wisely. Much like with their children, they aren't looking for their finances to do for them with only what God can do. They're not looking to make their finances into a God who will ultimately make their life better. Because God rules them, their money does not. Therefore, they're free to be wise with it. Twice in this psalm, the blessed person is mentioned as being generous. The Hebrew actually means open-fisted. 
They're not clenching tightly to their money. Why? Because God is what I need. And so like the God they worship, they are generous with their wealth and their spiritual resources. Because they are not enslaved to their money, they are using it to serve others. By the way, you can be enslaved to money in both riches and poverty, right? You can be so consumed with your money having a lot of it, or you can be so consumed with money having very little of it. I tended to be in the latter category. The third blessing is found in verse 4. Light dawns in the darkness for the upright. He is gracious, merciful, and righteous. The God-fearing, command-delighting person sees clearly in times of obscurity and acts in faith, not fear. That makes them gracious and merciful and morally upright. So even in times of darkness, they're acting in response to the Lord's character, not their circumstances. So there's light when there isn't any. Light for them is generated by God, not the clarity of their circumstances. And so they see clearly in dark places. Light dawns in the darkness for the upright. In times of darkness, when everybody else is fearfully fretting, and they're selfish and self-protecting and self-promoting, this man, this woman is producing generosity and mercy and keeps their moral course. The fourth blessing is found in verse 5. It is well with the man who deals generously and lends, who conducts his affairs with justice. The God-fearing, command-delighting person has a contented soul and conducts his affairs with generosity and justice. And so when when the verse starts out and says, it is well with the man, you remember the old hymn, it is well, it is well with my soul. He's reflecting this psalm. My soul is content in, in in the songwriters, in the hymnist's case, his children had died. He had lost everything and he's on a boat. And what's he saying? I'm content in my soul. This is what the psalmist is saying. This God-fearing person has a contented soul. It's well with them. He needs nothing with the Lord and has him so he is content. And because of that, he can deal justly with other people because he's not looking to get something out of them. You see it? I don't need nothing from you. So I can be fair and just and compassionate with you. The fifth blessing is found in verses 6 and 7. For the righteous will never be moved. He will be remembered forever. He is not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm, trusting the Lord. The God-fearing, command-delighting person interprets his circumstances correctly, seeing bad times in context of the bigger picture and God's character. Remember a few weeks ago when we were talking about our anchor in Philippians and putting our anchor in Christ alone, 
And I said that no person who has their anchor set in Christ ought to be sloshing all over the deck of a ship and acting as if they don't have one. You remember that? The psalmist is saying the same thing here. The one who fears the Lord and delights in his commandment is not sloshing all over the surface of the ocean as if they have no anchor. Their soul is steady. They will not be moved. They're not afraid of bad news. Their heart is firm, trusting, anchor in the Lord. Hebrews 6, 9. And therefore, they see their circumstances in light of their fixed point in eternity, and they live accordingly. Their heart is steadfast. They will not be moved. This is the result of somebody who is consumed with the character of the Lord. The sixth blessing is found in verse 8. His heart is steady. He will not be afraid. I've just read this part. I went ahead of myself. No, I didn't. Sorry. This is another. This is the second he is steady, by the way. His heart is steady. He will not be afraid until he looks in triumph on his adversaries. Again, twice. Steady. Courageous. Fixed. Firm. Resolute disposition in his heart. This is not a person who is swayed by political upheavals, the latest tabloid, the newest video coming out, cultural chaos. He knows both his end and his enemy's end. Yeah, it is true. The God-fearing, command-delighting person has a steady heart not fearful, giving him an advantage over his enemies. Many of you men know, and I think you've communicated to your families, we talk about things in our men's workshop called a set point. It's an identity statement where we say, this is who God has created me to be. God help me to live into this reality. And here recently, I've adjusted mine one more time, and I ended it with, God knows my appointed time, and until then, I'm bulletproof. And that has given me tremendous amounts of confidence. God knows my intended point in time. He knows my end, and until that time, I'm bulletproof. The God-fearing, command-delighting person has a steady not fearful heart giving him advantage over his enemies. The seventh blessing, verse 9. He has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. His horn is exalted in honor. The God-fearing, command-delighting person views the distress of others actively. He responds in tangible ways to those in need out of the generosity of both his wallet and his spirit. He gives out of the abundance of his soul. 
and his finances. These are the blessings of the person who fears the Lord and delights in his commandments. But then there's this interesting one at the end. Verse 10, the wicked man sees it and is angry. He gnashes his teeth and melts away. The desire of the wicked will perish. I thought about this quite a bit. I think what the psalmist is saying is you're going to have an amazing life, but don't think for a minute that all this goodness means that everybody is going to like you. Don't think for a minute that as good as your life is going to get, that just because your life is good, that people are going to like you and think well of you. Matter of fact, just the opposite. The wicked person will see the blessing of the Lord in your life. And like the verse we read at the beginning, you will shine like light. You will be salt in a world that desperately needs flavor. And people are going to react and resist it. The wicked man will see the Lord blessing your life and his teeth will gnash at you. As I thought about this, I thought about the number of times that I thought, if I just say this the right way and say this winsomely enough, this person will like me and the truth I'm presenting. Have you ever done that? Yeah. Not for nothing, but whole churches are developing their entire outreach on programs based on this kind of thinking. If we just do it, you know, the way they like it enough, they're going to like us. Not true. What we see here is this God-fearing, command-delighting person is a really good person. Right? Verses 2 through 9. They've got a lot of really good things going on. But they're not liked by everybody. Yet while the desires of the God-fearing, command-delighting person are fulfilled and overflowing to generosity, the desires of the righteous person are fulfilled to overflowing. Look how it ends. The desire of the wicked will perish. It'll come to an end. Know your end. Know the end of the wicked. So here's some applications for us. Here's what I would charge you with right off the bat. Fear God. Delight in His commandments. And enjoy the blessing. Here's another way to think about this psalm. We do not have to strive for the characteristics that are in verses 2 through 9. We shouldn't read through this psalm and think, ah, my finances are a little bit out of askew. I'm not as generous as I should be. I'm going to sign up for that Ramsey class, and I'm going to try to do better at that. Or, I should be more stable in difficult times. I tend to be like kind of all over the place I shouldn't let what's going on in our world trouble me so much. I, I should work on that. There's a place for that kind of thinking, okay? But that's not the point of this passage. 
The point of this passage is fear the Lord. Delight in his commandments. And get ready to receive the blessed life. These characteristics will belong to you. They will manifest themselves consequentially as a result of fearing the Lord and delighting in his commandments. These things come to you secondarily as you primarily focus on the main point, the hinge of the passage. Fear the Lord, delight yourself in his commandments. So this psalm encourage us, encourages us to set our mind on the activity of God in praise. So through this psalm, what we should be stirred up to do is not a self-improvement project, but what we should be stirred up to do is to seek and to speak the greatness of the Lord in generous proportions, resulting in a full-personed, whole-being, all-in declaration of, God has been very good to me. And so as our lives become more and more enamored with the Lord and His ways, we become more and more like the one we worship. So as we believe in the greatness of God's ways and we conform ourselves to them, obedience unto action, worship unto action, and we learn to love His commandments and we delight in them and we live in them, we will reflect Him like the moon does the sun. And I would put forth before you, church, like I did when we were in Colossians, this is the secret of growing and changing. If you're stuck in your ability to grow and change and overcome certain things, I'm telling you, based on the Word of the Lord, it starts with worship. Our growth and change starts Not with us figuring ourselves out. Our growth and change starts with us gazing upon the goodness and the greatness of our Lord in genuine worship. So, as we have now passed the holiday of Thanksgiving, may we not pass the spirit of it. May we carry a full-personed, whole-being, all-in declaration of God's goodness into, our, into the rest of our week, our month, the Christmas season, and beyond. And may we carry the character. This is so good, Brother Nick, for putting that Matthew passage up there. This goes exactly with what we read at the beginning. May we carry the character of the blessed life of our Lord into our lives and into a world that desperately needs to see Him and needs to see a difference between those who say they love and follow the Lord and those who say they love the fo- love and follow the Lord but don't. So again, may we grow in our ability to gaze upon the works of the Lord because the more we gaze, the more we see. The more we see, the more we'll worship. 
And worship begets worship. And so he ends Psalms 111. His praise endures forever. The praise of the Lord is what endures forever. Father in heaven, fix our hearts on this truth. While the righteous man may be praised, your praise is the only praise that goes on forever and ever. The praise for the righteous only gets attributed back to you because the only life that could be considered righteous is one that is at your feet and understands that you are first. Help us, Lord, to be encouraged in our ability to hold you high, to put your attributes on display, to love you wholeheartedly, to be consumed with your attributes and with your character and with your great works and your kind thoughts towards us. That we would be consumed with these things, be genuine worshipers, and take on your very character. For your glory, for our joy, and for the sake of those around us who need you. Hear our prayers. In Jesus, our King. Amen.